Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And today on episode 74, we're on a roll right now with Russian themes here at the Coffee House. And as you know, in our last episode, we talked about Alexander Borodin, a member of the Mighty Five Composers of Russia. This week, we're talking about one of his musical friends, Modest Mussorgsky, who is also a member of the Five. You are probably familiar with at least some of Mazorsky's music. If you've seen Disney's original Fantasia film, Mazorsky is the composer of the spooky Night on Bald Mountain. So we're not talking about that piece today, but we'll introduce you to a lesser known but just as good work, The Persian Dances. Modest Petrovich Mazorsky was born in Karevo, Russia in 1839. His family was of the upper middle class and though not nobility, was thought to have been descendants of the first ruler of Russia, Rurik. Mussorgsky began to learn piano at age six, and he soon developed a deep love of music. However, he was slated to be a military officer. And so, at the ripe age of 13, he was enrolled in the cadet school of the guards. He still found time to dabble in music while at school, though, and even composed a polka, the Porte Insigni Polka, in honor of his school friends. Aw, how sweet of him. Once Mazorsky graduated out of the Cadet Academy, he was transferred to the real deal, the Prebrovzinski Regiment of the Guards. While he was a member of this regiment, he crossed paths with our good friend Borodin, the military chemist doctor composer, and the two quickly bonded and formed a lifelong friendship over their love of music. Probably due to his acquaintance with Borden, Mazorsky soon convinced Bolakarev, the more senior member of the Mighty Five, to begin giving him composition lessons on the side. Unfortunately, Mazorsky's limited military career didn't quite turn out the way anyone had planned, because he suffered a nervous breakdown in 1858, just two years into his service, and he was allowed to leave and return home. Now, this could have been Mussorgsky's story. He could have easily slipped into a life of composition, perhaps even going back to school for a formal music education. However, that was not to be, because in 1861, the Russian serfs were emancipated, and Mussorgsky's family's upper-middle-class way of life was upturned. For the first time in his life, Mussorgsky actually had to figure out how to make money for himself. So he first tried civil service, but apparently wasn't a very good worker and never really held down a job for long. Through it all, however, he still composed. As a member of the Mighty Five, he helped establish what Russian classical music should be. As we mentioned in our last episode, even though these Russians wanted to dispense with the Western influences, in particular the Germans, they still ended up having similar nationalistic goals that the Germans had. Mazorsky helped lay out two of the main goals that he thought should be reflected in Russian music. First, that Russian music should express the Russian soul, and second, that Russian music should be written in a Russian way. But what, pray tell, is the Russian (laughs) way? 
Well, Mussorgsky was actually very well versed in German arts and had determined that the Germans wrote music based on a form and shaped the meaning around the form. So he suggested a contrary option, that the Russians should first find meaning in their music and that a form will organically appear around it. For this reason, the music composed by the Mighty Five is often through-composed, meaning the music changes as the piece progresses, and themes heard at the beginning don't necessarily come back at the end. Basically, it's the antithesis to the popular Sonata Allegro form. Though he was an obvious intellectual with big dreams, Mazorsky left many projects unfinished, and this is partly due to his alcoholism that consumed him after the death of his mother in 1865. His composer friends knew that he had quite a lot of potential, and at the time of his death were dismayed at the amount of good yet unfinished material he had left behind. Many of his works were finished by his friends, such as the orchestration of pictures at an exhibition that was finished by Rimsky-Korsakov. Modest Mussorgsky was respected as a composer during his lifetime, despite just being an amateur. His opera Boris Godunov, about a Russian ruler, much like Borodin's Prince Igor from last episode, was a hit with the Russian crowds. However, near the end of his life, Mussorgsky was hospitalized and experienced a series of seizures. He died at the age of 42 in 1881. So now we'll move on to talking about the Persian dances. So the Persian dances are an instrumental interlude from Mussorgsky's nationalist opera, Kovinsteiner. This opera focuses on a political power struggle in Russia in 1682. The plot, as one can imagine, is quite convoluted, but basically revolves around trying to determine which prince will take over the position of Tsar. And basically, the last one standing will win the crown. Like many of the other works Mussorgsky started, this too remained unfinished at his death and was orchestrated posthumously. The Persian dance section is the fourth of five acts. The plot of the opera has brought us to a point where a certain Prince Ivan believes he has just about won the throne. However, he is moody and bored and demands that his Persian slaves dance for him. While they are dancing, he receives a message that he is in danger, which he just brushes off. He then receives another message that he believes to be from the Tsarina, summoning him to the palace. However, as he leaves his rooms, he is stabbed. Gasp! The slaves then have a moment of triumph over being freed from their master. This music is obviously meant to evoke the sound of the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire being the area now made up by Middle Eastern countries, predominantly Iran. The dance of the slaves starts out mournfully with an English horn solo as the moody prince urges his equally unhappy slaves to dance. It has the classic quality one might expect from a snake charmer melody. Soon, however, the dance picks up pace, and there is a sneaky transition to get us there. Coming out of the violins playing the slower melody, the clarinet comes in playing what sounds at first to be just a cadenza-like flourish over a held note. However, 
However, a tambourine in the background comes in playing upbeats in a decidedly faster tempo than the previous material. And just having the more pulsating rhythm in the background helps the music to build in intensity. And soon, the music gets even more intense. The brass come in with dramatic minor chords, and mixed in with the calm melody still from before, the strings also have some sweeping lines that suggest action is happening. This music is really all about changing the tempo and intensity. And so just as the clarinet first brought us into the upbeat section, it also takes us out. Mussorgsky has written an extended ritardando during the clarinet solo that is accentuated with the tambourine still in the background. With the upbeats of the measure clearly getting further apart as the tempo slows down, the audience is very aware of the music winding down. Another way Mazorski musically depicts that something might be changing in the scene is through judicious repetition. Here, we hear a trumpet with a repetitive motif. It goes on for just a little longer than you'd want to really be listening to the same thing over and over. However, just when you're wondering what in the world is Mussorgsky thinking, he changes up the pattern just a little by adding violins and changing the tempo slightly. You could easily imagine the stage direction for the opera would be someone having a dawning realization and springing into action. And then again, the clarinet picks things up. But the energy gets even more intense this time with a classic violin section tremolo that always sounds like a whirlwind of energy. In this section, there's also upward sequencing of the theme telling the audience that something big really is coming. And that big thing is completely new musical material in the form of high-pitched downward scales before the brass come in with a slightly altered rendition of the original motif. This descending scale is then passed all the way through the orchestra to the very low brass. Before it turns right around and heads back up. We've talked in previous episodes about different timbres of the orchestra meaning how you can meld certain instruments' sounds more easily into each other. This excerpt is a great example of paying close attention to the timbre of the instruments, as the high instruments the scale starts with are not able to get all the way to the bottom of the scale, and vice versa. This piece of course ends with the prince being stabbed, and the Persian slaves are of course happy about it. The ending is not overly dramatic, but it does end with a major chord. These factors, when heard together, almost make it sound comical, much like Offenbach's famous Infernal Gallop. So this piece this week was short and sweet. In the big picture, it isn't really as stereotypically Russian as something we might as normally associate with a Mighty Five composer. However, that's a credit to Mussorgsky's versatility. 
He was aiming to write the piece in a certain folk style, Persian, and succeeded in not letting his own Russian tastes take center stage. If you liked this episode, please consider dropping us a like on our Facebook page and sharing this episode and others with a friend of similar mind. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I am Allison. And I'm Asa. Thank you so much for listening. The Persian dances were performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.